You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's continue on our worship. We're going to go to God's Word. First uh, John, we're in our second to last installment of this series called The Heart of Christ, where we're really wanting to discover Jesus' heart for us, um, particularly who, what kind of people? Well, sinners and sufferers. And so really, that describes every single person. It describes the whole, um, the whole world, uh, sufferers and sinners. And we have just a couple more weeks in this series. I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8 through 2, 6. You can follow along with me. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word. I want to paint a brief uh, picture for you. Imagine this situation after the service today. Uh, you go outside and you engage with some friends. You're talking out in the parking lot or on the sidewalk. And I walk up to you rather quickly and somewhat rudely and say, stop whatever you're doing and get out of here. <laughs> now you're thinking, oh, what a jerk, right? And if, but if I catch you on a good day, maybe at the very best, you'll, you'll pray for me and you'll be gracious to me. You'll think the best in me. But now consider this situation with a little bit more information. I walk up to you in the same manner rather quickly and interrupt you in the conversation and say, there's a rattlesnake six inches from your foot. Stop whatever you're doing and move away from here. I'm not a jerk anymore, am I? I'm a friend. I come with a gift, a blessing, rescuing you, saving you. Scripture is filled with confrontations just like that. Scripture is filled with with warnings like this, with harsh words, with confrontation, but they are filled with blessing. They are filled with grace. They are filled with rescue and mercy. Our passage today can feel like one of those difficult conversations, a difficult confrontation that might drive us to despair rather than into the peace of God's arms. Because we don't fully understand what it's aiming at. John's purpose in writing, as he states it, is so that we would not sin. And he's concerned with how we live our life. He's concerned with our manner of living and our living before one another and our living before God. And this, his words can seem harsh. He calls us liars twice in this if we say that we have no sin, if we are without sin or fail to obey even the commands of God then he calls us a liar. He says the truth isn't even in us. And we can misunderstand the tone of Scripture and even the very purpose and meaning of Scripture itself when we fail to see the purpose behind these words. It's not to shame us. It's not to 
uh, put us into despair. It's to rescue us. It is that, that situation of that rattlesnake. It is a gift to be confronted in such a way so that we could be rescued. And what ties this all together in this passage is the key, the central key to knowing how we are to live our life by knowing that Jesus is our advocate. He is the one who stands before us and the judge to fight for us. He's the one that, that pleads for our case. He is the one who defends us, encourages us, and speaks for us in our place before God. And in the ancient world, this advocate, this word, was a, this position was closest to our modern-day defense attorney, the one who would plead a defendant's case before a judge. And so when John, the writer here, calls Jesus our advocate, he means that Jesus stands before us in the Father, before the throne of judgment, pleads our case. That's what an advocate is. That's what an advocate does. But what difference does that make for our lives, knowing that Jesus is our advocate? What does, it, what does it matter to us? How does it change the way that we look at our own sin, and how does it change the way we look at the sin of other people, knowing that Jesus is our advocate? Well, we see a few benefits here that Jesus is our advocate in this passage. Let's look at those together. The first benefit of having Jesus as our advocate is that he is the only way to truly deal with the guilt of sin. He's the only way. We look at many other different ways to deal with the guilt of sin in our life. Jesus is the only way. He begins this new theme in order to expand on the subject of sin in the life of a Christian. In fact, a form of that word sin is used eight times just in this short passage that we read. And if we expand it, it goes even more than that. We see it even more in, this, in these couple chapters. See again in, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You notice that if you look, you don't even have to look carefully, but if you just are willing to acknowledge the fact that if you look in Scripture, there's not a question of if we sin, but there's really a declaration that we do sin. Saying if we, if we say we don't have sin, then we're lying. The truth isn't in us. And so how we react to this, how we react to the fact that we are sinners is of vital importance. It's possible, the scriptures say, to deceive ourselves, to kind of trick ourselves into thinking that we're not as bad as, as we think or as the Bible says. When John is saying that it's possible, actually, to convince ourselves that what we are doing at times is right when what we're actually doing is something very unrighteous. Do you know, maybe this isn't something that you know about me, but do you know that I have never lost an argument that I've had in my head with another person? Not once. I mean, I am undefeated. I mean, you would be so impressed with the arguments that I can come up, the case that I build to, sh to vindicate myself, to justify myself, to prove to myself that what I am doing, thinking, and how I am acting is right. The Bible says it's actually possible to trick ourselves into thinking that way. I have the best arguments. I present the most articulate evidence. My closing argument is flawless. And the jurors in my head stand and applaud my case. I've never lost. You see, no one ever loses the arguments that they have in their head with another person. Because we are biased to see things in ways that justify our deeds and condemn the deeds of others. 
And when we deceive ourselves, we will, we will never admit our sin. We will never seek God's forgiveness. And that is a very dangerous position to be in. To be in a position to, to, to say, no, I am right. The way that I see it is the way that it has to be. It's a very dangerous place to be. And John says, don't deceive yourself. The only way to deal with that guilt in our heart that is there, whether we see it or not, is to admit our failure, to see Christ as our advocate, the one who defends us. We don't have to defend ourselves. Verse 8, as we just looked at, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's, it reminds me what's happening here. It's equivalent of that detective in Law and Order or any of these law shows saying, time to lawyer up. <laughs> because the case against you is mounting. The evidence against you is, is convicting. And so that, that detective says, I hope you have a good lawyer because you're going to need it. It's kind of what John is saying here. It's not a matter of if we sin. It's a matter of the evidence is there. How are we going to defend ourselves? The evidence is compelling. The sin in each of us has damaged us beyond our own ability to have fellowship with God and sometimes even to recognize the unrighteousness in our life. So how will we deal with that when it's confronted here? There's two ways to deal with it. Two ways of dealing with that guilt of sin when it's exposed. We either blame someone else for our sin or in humility, we run to Jesus Christ, our advocate who fights for us. And those who claim righteousness in themselves make God out to be a liar. Those who say, my only defense before God is I know that I am right. John says, then you deceive yourself and you're lying against God. You're going to war with God himself and calling him to be a liar. So it's a dangerous place to be in. Have you ever, have you ever had to level a picture on the wall? I'm sure you've had, you've had to do that. Uh, you ever stand back from that picture and say, it looks great, that's perfect, it looks really straight, but then you go up, you put the level on top of it, and the level actually says it's not straight? And you think to yourself, but it looks straight to me. There's only two possibilities in that. The level is broken or your eyes are broken. The level is crooked or your eyes are crooked. There is no, let's agree to disagree when it comes to the commands of God. You You don't move the level to make the picture straight and say, there, fixed it. You move the picture. The level is straight. God's commands are straight. God's word is level. And it's by it's by his word and his command that we match everything in our life. We move the picture on the wall. And so verse 8 is proof enough that we are more unrighteous than we could ever imagine and carry the guilt that cannot fix it. But verse 9 is proof that, we are, that more forgiveness is available than we ever could hope for. Would you look at verse 9? If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How quickly John moves from the danger of being in a position of seeking to justify ourselves to the forgiveness and hope that is found in admitting our failures and humbly going to Christ for help. How quickly he moves into that. How much unrighteousness does he cleanse us from? Some unrighteousness? 
all unrighteousness. As if we have never sinned, he makes us clean when we come to him admitting our sin before him. Humbly asking for his forgiveness, we like scarlet, our sins like scarlet, have been made white as snow. He leaves no sin unaccounted for. It's a great comfort. And how quickly he doesn't let us fester in this pain. He doesn't let us linger on this condemnation. He says, here is how bad it can be. Here is how bad you are. But here's the hope so quickly. Confessing our sins. Being forgiven. And being cleansed of all unrighteousness. Imagine how you might be prone to do something different when your sins are exposed how you might be prone to focus your attention when you are confronted in your own sin. Do you, it's different for everybody, do you blame others? Not my fault, it's your fault. Do you, do you minimize your sin and say it's not that big of a deal? I mean, sure you may have made some mistakes, but it's not nearly as bad as you could have been or as bad as others might be. Do you ignore it altogether and just kind of lose yourself in work or recreation or family life or just kind of just put it in the back of your mind and just try to move on from it? You know, it's very possible to feel very remorseful and embarrassed by our sin and grieve our sin, but never really truly confess our sin. The Bible talks about this possibility of having this worldly sorrow. Gosh, I'm really, I really wish that never happened. I really feel bad that I did that. I'm so embarrassed that that, that sin was exposed. i got to try harder in the future to not do that. And on the surface, those might look like great humility and confessing, but that's not confessing our sins. Confessing our sin is acknowledging our offense against God. God, that I've gone to war with you. I have, I have wronged you. I've sinned against you, and to you I am accountable. Please forgive me. I need your help. I need your rescue. There's only one The only way that you and I will ever hear the words from God, you are forgiven, is if we say the words, I have sinned. I know that might be hard to hear. It's it's this situation of the rattlesnake. It's coming up and saying, this is going to be hard to hear. But if you listen to it, it will bring a gift. It'll be a grace. It'll be a mercy. It'll set you free. It will be a blessing to you. If we desire to hear from God, you are forgiven and your sins are cleaned. We have to say, I have sinned and I am guilty of what you say I'm guilty of. Jesus is not just our advocate. Another word that is used of Jesus, which is a great name for Jesus, is Jesus the righteous. He's given another name, Jesus the righteous. What does that mean? Our, our passage doesn't say that Jesus, who is our advocate, is standing before God and Jesus Christ the merciful. Now, he is merciful, but that's not what they say here. Or Jesus Christ the persuasive. Or it says Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, a good lawyer, a really good lawyer, doesn't just play on the emotions of the court with smooth talk. Now, that will get you only so far, but a good lawyer has a case. A good lawyer brings convincing evidence. And as our advocate, this is what Jesus is presenting. Do you see this in this passage? This is what he is presenting. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation for our sins. 
What evidence does Jesus bring to God the Father to say, they are innocent. They have been pardoned. He doesn't bring our evidence. He doesn't bring the evidence of our record or our character. He brings his own righteousness. The life that we should have lived and the death that he died that we deserve to die. The case that Jesus brings before the Father is his own very sacrifice on the cross. You see, Jesus isn't, I don't know what kind of image you have with Christ as he goes to the Father to plead for your pardon. He is not begging God the Father and saying, just this once, please, I really love them and I know you really hate them and you're an angry God, but but please do this for my friends. Forgive them. Let them get off this time. I promise they'll get better. Do you see Jesus pleading with the Father to just be merciful to you in spite of your sins? It's not the picture we have of Jesus in heaven. But what we see of Jesus in heaven, we see only the law, only, it is only the righteous that can see God. It is only the one who has obeyed God perfectly that can see God And so Jesus, the righteous, stands in our place and says, accept them, receive them, forgive them because of what I have done. And I have obeyed you perfectly. I stand in their place as their advocate. And so God the Father receives us who have confessed our sins and put our hope in Christ because of what Jesus has done. It would be unjust for God to turn his back on those who trust in Jesus. Do you you hear this? It would be wrong of God, unjust of God, unrighteous of God. It would go against his character and nature to turn away from those who put their trust in Jesus. Because when God the Father looks at us, having put our trust in Jesus, Him being our advocate, he looks at us as ones who have never committed any sins. As ones who have been pardoned from sin, and the righteousness of Christ is now ours. And so it would be unjust for us to be condemned. Isn't that amazing? Can you grasp that in your heart? Can you at least comprehend that in your mind to realize that that's what the scriptures teach us? That's what God's word says. How does that change you, you the, the, way, the way you interact with the sins of your own life and the sins of others? You know, knowing this, knowing that we stand before God as pardoned ones, that we'll never have to seek to justify ourselves ever again. We'll treat the knowledge of our sin as something not to hide, not to conceal, not to something to keep from God or others, but as something to willingly surrender to God. Why do you hide your sin? What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of judgment. I'm afraid of condemnation. I'm afraid of ridicule. I'm afraid of of being seen as a failure. But look at the good news that God has spoken to us. When we confess our sins, we hear back from God, you are forgiven. And I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we will willingly surrender our sins. We will not see the, our, the exposure of our sin in our heart, something to hide. It'll see, we'll see it as like a welcomed friend that leads us to Jesus. 
We will want to confess. We will get good at confessing. We will not want to hide anything in our heart. Jesus is our advocate. As our advocate, secondly, he, there's another benefit in our passage. He frees us from the need to vindicate ourselves. This is where we understand the, the meaning of advocate a little bit in a deeper sense. It means not just comforter and encourager, but literally an advocate is the one who walks alongside us. Consider times of hardship in your life and difficulty when, the, when things are just as hard as they can be, when you deal with discouragement, when you deal with failure or sorrow or sin, when you deal with disappointment for how your life is going and you look at your life and you just think, I'm not in a good place, I'm not where I want to be. When you deal with betrayal or loss of friendship, when those troubles come into your life, you feel the burden of them. Have you noticed how you might begin to make a case before God as to why those things shouldn't happen to you? I don't deserve this. I've worked hard to get where I am. I'm not as bad as they say that I am. I have to set the record straight. They have it all wrong. It's not fair. When something that we care deeply about gets taken away from us or is destroyed, even our peace or our contentment or the secure things in our life, we tend to become discouraged and even vindictive, attempting to clear our name and to make sure that we are presented to others in a light that is favorable. And when we are doing this, we are building our case and sending something to God that is other than Jesus to prove to God that we're worthy, that we're okay, that we're good, that we're special, that we have a, a place in this world that matters. These arguments that we, that we build in our heart to make us feel like we still have an anchor and footing in this world and that things are not out of control, when it's other than Jesus, we are asking something else to walk alongside us, something else to vindicate our name, somebody else to stand for us. And Jesus says, I'm that advocate. No one can argue your case better than I can. No one comes alongside you to clear your name better than I can. And nothing else can do that. St. Augustine once said, the need for constant vindication destroys our soul's faith in God. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? What he means by that? The need to constantly defend ourselves, the need for us to constantly be seen in the eyes of others as understood, and for other people to see our point of view. It's, it, it destroys our faith in God. It destroys our ability to say, God, no matter what happens in my life, I trust you, and you have my life in your hands. Lust for vindication, there's no other word than that. Lust of this craving for, this need for it, this hunger and thirst to always make sure that our arguments are made and that our name is cleared. I am convinced that the comment sections on Facebook and Twitter and news articles exist because of this lust for vindication. We see something said and we say, can't let them get away with that. <laughs> i got to make my point of view known on this. I have to. This may be surprising to you, but you actually don't. <laughs> you don't need to clear your name. You don't need to make your point of view understood. People do not need to see things your way. Why? 
Because Christ is your advocate. He defends you. And this is the point where the, where the wives like elbow their husbands, right? You listen. I have to make my point of view known. I have to explain myself. I have to correct misunderstanding. I have to set the record straight. And this is a lust of constantly making our point of view known, and it stems from a lack of trust in Christ as our advocate. He will go before you. No lie will ever go unpunished. No untruth will ever endure. No rumor will ever win. Why do we have this incessant need to make sure that our name and integrity and point of view is upheld? Because we don't know that Christ is our advocate who goes alongside of us and pleads our case with the Father. Dane Ortland and Gentle and Lowly describes this, this built-in mechanism within us that kicks in immediately when we need to explain things that are not really our fault. Oh, it wasn't my fault, and you need to understand the circumstance of it. You need to understand the context. Context is everything, and you start to explain everything. Why do we feel that way? Because we are leaving our reputation and our image and our dignity and our identity and our sense of well-being and control of the life that we have, not in the hands of Christ, but in something else that will never be able to plead our case as good as Jesus. Jesus will never, there will never be an, a, a, an advocate as good as Jesus. No one will be able to plead our case and defend our cause like Jesus can. Ortland puts it this way in, in Gentle and Lowly, the book we've been reading along with this series. What if we never needed to advocate for ourselves because another had undertaken to do so? What if that advocate knew exhaustively just how fallen we are and yet at the same time was able to make a better defense for us than we ever could, pointing to his all-sufficient sacrifice and sufferings on the cross in our place? What if we would be free? We would be free. It, it leads to freedom in our life. It leads to uh, the ability to cover over the sins of others. It leads to us confessing our sins with God. It is the truth that sets us free. And we can release that burden of always have to vindicate our name. And we could go to God and we say, I know that you are my defense. And that makes that burden which is melt off of our shoulders. It leads us to live lives of true freedom. We look now at the final benefit of having Christ as our advocate. He leads us to live a life of true freedom. Our passage sets forth two aspects of God's response to people who confess their sins. What happens to people who confess their sins? One, they are forgiven. And two, they are cleansed of all unrighteousness. And if I just told you that if we confess our sins, then you are forgiven, you would say, sounds like a great deal. But there's more. If we stop there, that would be enough. That would be great. But do you see what happens when we confess our sins? We're forgiven, but we are also cleansed of all unrighteousness. We are purified. And there's an important distinction between the two. To be forgiven means that we no longer Whole, we are no longer in this position of guilt before God. 
And he no longer holds any sin against us. That's hardly hard to believe, but that's the truth. He no longer holds any sin against us. And are looked at as innocent. And our debt is canceled. And in legal terms, we are pardoned. We're pardoned of our sin. And that's great. But to be cleansed of all unrighteousness speaks of the removal then of the barrier that is produced by sin that keeps us from fellowship with God. Deep, ongoing communion with God. Not only are you free to go about your life, but you are now welcomed into the power of God in your life. The result is an enduring soul rest and joyful obedience to his commands. The judgment's been taken away. Our failure to, be, to obey his commands has been satisfied in Christ and our desire for acceptance has been met in Christ. Look at verse 3 again. Verse 3, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. This is not a scare tactic. This is not a scare tactic into heaven. No one is ever scared into heaven. There are warnings in the Bible, but never to scare us. If I like the rattlesnake, if I say there's a rattlesnake six inches from your left foot, you wouldn't be sorry, you wouldn't be mad at us if, if we literally pushed you over out of the way. You would say, Thank you for doing that. You saved my life. So in scripture, these hard things are never scare tactics, but they are a grace. They are warnings. No one gets to heaven by believing you better be good or God won't love you. That's the gospel according to Santa. But there is something that happens here when we conceal our sin, when we hide our sin, When we fail to confess our sins and turn to Christ in faith, we are trapped in a dark habit of sin where sin appears luring and comfortable and the commands of God seem harsh and we don't want any part of it. And what John is saying is, what happens when we confess our sins and humbly come to God and see Jesus as our advocate, there's something that happens in us in regards to his commands. No longer do we say, I don't want any part of that. But when the light of salvation comes on, we run to God and say, I want to love the things that you love. I want to hate the things that you hate. And I want, and I, and I want to love your commands because your commands are invitations into your joy and your peace. When we are trapped in a habit of unconfessed sin, sin appears friendly and God's word appears like an enemy. Doesn't it? You hear a command from God's word and you feel horrible. But when you look at sin, you feel comforted. This is opposite from the way it's supposed to be. Consider this fictional story. There's a story, and I want you to put your, your, yourself in this situation. There's a story of a man who's in a dark room, pitch black, can't even see his hand in front of his face. Dark room with a man-eating monster and a dark night with a sword covered in armor with a shield and a sword. And he can't see anything, right? This man in the dark room can't see anything. And he wants to be comforted. He wants to feel safe. 
And so he feels around on his hands and knees for something to feel comforted. And he's drawn to the warmth of the monster and the softness of his fur. And when he touches the knight, he's, 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 he's pushed away from it as he feels the coldness of the metal and the sharpness of the sword. But he takes the embrace of this, this man-eating monster. But when the lights are turned on, the truth is revealed. And he sees what he has found as comforting and found as a warm is actually there to destroy him. But now he sees the night, what was cold and sharp, as the only thing that can rescue him. This is what happens when we confess our sins. When we confess our sins, the light is turned on and we see things for how they actually are. The word of God is something that is life-giving and rescues us, that brings us into true freedom, true joy, true rescue, and sin as something that actually keeps us imprisoned in that dark room of pain and alienation from God. When we, will we run to the truth of God's word? Will we run away from the dangerous monster seeking to devour us? That's why John says, I don't want you to sin. But when you do sin, we have an advocate. We have one who goes on our behalf. And so confess your sins, be forgiven, and we will be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Salvation happens when the lights are turned on. We see the truth. Knowing that, knowing Christ as your advocate, knowing him as your defender and your friend, knowing that he stands be- between you and God, and he stands before you, comes alongside you and says, I will defend you. And you'll be pardoned of sin. You'll be rescued and saved. And your reputation and your name, you don't have to worry about. Why would you hide? Why would you hide anything? Why would you make your own case before God when Jesus is there pleading to make your case for you? So confess your sins. Make them known to God. Not just your remorse and your sorrow, but confess them to God. See Jesus, the righteous one, standing in your place and let all the troubles that drive you in your life, let them instead drive you into the loving arms of God who loves you and sent his son to die for you.